Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville down in Mississippi and I'm Al Hunt here in Washington. Don't forget, we answer your questions. If you have a question for us, write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon. For next week's show, we'll get to as many as we can. This episode is sponsored by Blinkist, Four Sigmatic, and Magic Spoon. You can check them out in the show notes. We thank them for their support of the podcast and thank all of you for listening today. Please tell your friends and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, with only a little more than two and a half weeks to go, let's get on with the show. Hey, James, there's so much politics to talk about, but let's start with that Supreme Court uh, nomination hearings of Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, let's assess whether there are any political implications to it. Look, I think two things about her. She is one of the most uh, engaging uh, nominees since Sandra Day O'Connor, and she's also the most right-wing nominee since Robert Bork. She's going to be confirmed. They have the votes. Uh, They cheated to get there because of what they did in Merrick Garland four years ago and not even having a hearing. She will be a very right-wing judge. It'll be bad for people who want to get more health care coverage, be bad for uh, people trying to vote. It'll be easy for to restrict voting. So it's going to be a problem. But I think politically, the Democrats played it pretty smart. They talked about the stakes. And the only people who brought up Catholicism, which is the issue Republicans hoped the Democrats would harp on, were Republicans. So all in all, you know the way it's going to end. And I thought the Democrats did a pretty good job. Yeah. It, it, after the election, we need to get like Walter Owen. And what this is all about is something in 1984 called the Chevron case. And they are going to overturn that. And this is about, there's a very good piece about how the Koch brothers have funded, are putting all their money into the federal courts. Because this case, as I understand it, of course, Professor Dellinger will be able to explain a lot better than I can, uh, uh, gives deference to regulatory agencies. At the court, it might have been Scalia that wrote it, that they don't possess the technical expertise to enforce these, these congressional laws, so they defer to, to, to the EPA as, as an example, but it, it, it applies broadly. And when they overturn that, and they will, they will, that is going to be the biggest blow that you can imagine to climate change, to, to worker safety, health, uh, envi- anything to do with the environment, any of that is going to be, the effect of that is going to be stunning, and they're going after it. And that's, that's what it's all about. And the great myth that's being perpetrated is that these are just judges. They call the laws, they see them, it has nothing to do with Republicans or Democrats. That's, if you'll pardon the expression, bullshit. We know exactly. I mean, every now and then they will stray. Uh, every now and then there's a nominee, uh, William Brennan, a David Souter, who doesn't uh, uh, follow the expected line. But that's really rare. Uh, these judges, you can rest assured that Amy Barrett's going to vote with Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Uh, a real right winger and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh 90% of the time. And it's going to be good for the Republican party, good for corporate interests, bad for blacks and young people uh, who want to vote. That's just a simple fact. Yeah. The, 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 the kind of headline issues are, you know, abortion rights and, you know, Ogilvy and that kind of stuff. What these people are really interested in is, is corporate power and given as much power as they probably can. You know, the, it was an interesting thing that Mike Lee said. And Mike Lee is a very well-educated man. And you, you saw him at that super spreading event. I mean, it was, that was ridiculous. But he said, look, democracy is not really what's important here. It's liberty. And what they mean by liberty is low taxes and low regulation. And it, it, was, a, it was a stunning observation and admission. Like, of course, we're not into people voting that much. What we're into is allowing people to make as much money as they possibly can with lowest taxes that we can possibly give them with the least amount of regulation that we can possibly have. That's what's behind this. And, and that's not what, you don't raise money on that. It, it, but they, they give these conservatives, you know, they give them the, all the social, you know, hateful shit, you know, like the Vote. There's no, there's no racism in America, so we don't need a Voting Rights Act. I mean, the Supreme Court Justice, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, actually, he said that. I, I assume he believes it. 
I mean, this man is clueless. Well, the and and of course they 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 go hand in glove because if you go and you and you're able to crack down on voting and you and you and you lower the uh, the, the franchise, if you will, that makes it easier for both legislative and judicial fiats to protect corporate uh, and wealthy interests. So it, they're 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 not they're not unrelated. Uh, and 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 that's exactly uh, what they're doing. That's exactly what she's going to do. She's smart. She's incredibly bright. She's uh, you know was a star at what is pretty much of a right wing law school. But um, this is not. She's not going on that court to call balls and strikes, James. You know, there's a guy that, that he's in his eighties now. He was at Notre Dame Law School for a, a long, long time, and I, I, it was like Robert Blakely, something like that. He actually wrote the RICO statute, and he he said, "Yeah, I th- he worked for Robert Kennedy, actually." Yeah, and I think he's a Democrat. We should try to get him on the show and just talk about Notre Dame Law School, and I'm sure he knows Barrett. And I it, I think he would have some some real insights on what's going on there. Plus, he was a hell of a lawyer, to say the least. Well. She's going on the court. Uh, they're going to ram it through, but there will always be a stain on this because, uh, as I said before, they cheated to get there. There is no question that they cheated to get there. And James, I would have been very—I probably would have opposed the idea of whatever you call it, adding to the court. I don't like the term court. Expanding the federal judiciary. Let's just let's say expanding federal judiciary. That's a that's a good way to put. It. I think I really would have had great reservations when somebody cheats to get there which is to get their, their majority, which they did. They cheated. Now, Mitch McConnell in 2016 wanted to change the size of the court too, and he did for a year. He wanted an eight-person court rather than a nine-person court, and he got it. So the idea of going to an 11-person court uh, in a year or two from now, it seems to me, is I think you're looking at 13. Just, well, maybe 13. I think you're looking at 13. Yeah. And I hope one of them is Merrick Garland. The, the other thing is they don't have... The Constitution does not provide for a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. It provides for a lifetime appointment to the judiciary. So you could pass a statute that limits their terms to 12 years. Now, you can't kick them off the fence, but you, they can go be district judges in, in the D.C. court. Or they can be on the, D, on the D.C. Court of Appeals. Now, it's one thing to keep in mind. One thing to keep in mind, that's uh, still 12 pretty tough years. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I'm just saying that they, that they are options because this is a problem that they created, all right, that, that runs contrary to the Constitution. And, and also, the you have constitutional flexibility. And I'll tell you another option that they're going to look at really hard is, is you might be living in a state. That's a real possibility. And Puerto Rico, you know, Trump asked Puerto Ricans to vote for him. Of course, Puerto Ricans can't vote. But if the Democrats win the Senate, they might be voting in a presidential election come 2024. That's another real option. That's going to be a a tough slog. You know, going back to Barrett, one thing that, you know, she did, she gave the same sort of answer that every justice uh, nominee, uh, Democrat or Republican, they evade any specifics. I understand that. Robert Bork showed you the peril of not doing that. But there's one thing that really I find especially onerous, and that is the question of whether she would recuse herself if it goes, if the uh, an, an election challenge goes to the Supreme Court. Now, you and I both think this is going to be a decisive election. That won't happen. But should it happen, Trump made quite clear he was he was nominating her in order for her to be able to vote for him on the court. Now, she has the right of there's no automatic recusal. But if she cares about her reputation, the reputation of the court, she should say, of course, I'll recuse myself in that. She didn't. And I found that really absolutely uh, uh, just just shocking. Uh, there's nothing these people do that shock me. And by the way, you know, I, I, I'm very confident about the election, but, you, you know, you, don't, you could be wrong. I mean, Tom Etzel this morning, you know, had a, hey, don't go so fast kind of yeah. column. And- yeah. But but if that goes to the court and Amy and Amy Barrett cast a decisive vote, the stain that's already on uh, her um, her justiceship, if you will, uh, is going to be even greater. And that's just that's just totally. I mean, that's that's adding to the cheating. But that's what they do, I suppose. You know, this this one thing. I, I have a prediction about the polling and the outcome, and it is this: I think the polls are overcompensating for non-college rights. 
and I don't have any evidence to, to I don't have any evidence to uh, support that. But just knowing human nature, if they under under accounted for them in 2016, human nature tells me they're going to over account for them this year. I, I just got a text that I see from J.B. Porsche New York Times is released in North Carolina poll at 1 p.m. Did he tell you what it's going to show? No. You know, I don't think he knows. So, just, so, so I can be nervous for two hours. Thanks, James. Okay. Uh, listen, uh, you know, we want everybody to vote, as we've said. And, and just to repeat what we said last week, the vote, it, the, the greatest challenges really are for people with disabilities. So, again, I want to put a plug in for our vote, our time. That's nonpartisan. Help, help make sure that people with disabilities uh, are able to vote between now and on November 3rd. And James, before we go, let me just give one tribute, okay? Roberta McCain died this week. She was 108 years old. She was the mother of uh, the great Senator John McCain. Her husband was the Pacific commander when John McCain, his son, was in a Hanoi prison camp. Uh, his John McCain's grandfather was in the Arizona when the uh, Japanese surrendered. She, I think, John McCain's father and grandfather gave him his sense of duty and service. She gave him his joy and his zest for life. I went to a party at the 2000 convention for the McCain supporters. It was the press. And I saw, I'd written a piece on McCain that week, and Roberta McCain said, I read your piece on Johnny. It was really nice. I said, thank you, Mrs. McCain. She said, it read like he wrote it himself. Uh, she she was a character. She lived a great life, and she left an uh, incredible legacy. Great, and I, I I love the fact that his widow, Cindy McCain, is out campaigning for, for Joe Biden, and I think I'm pretty sure if Senator McCain was still with us, he'd be out campaigning for Joe Biden, too. I don't have any doubt of that. I don't have any doubt of that, and he would have stood up, unlike almost any other Republican, I guess any Republican, really, Mitt Romney sort of exempted, he would have stood up for him, uh, stood up against him in the Senate, too. But anyway, that's another story. Hey, we want to tell you about a really useful app. Uh, it's because if you're like James and I, you might need to read a couple books a day just to keep up with this incredible blizzard of news. That's why you want to use Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. It takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down to just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Yeah, I like Blinkist. Because it, it helps me get to the meat and potatoes of a book in only 15 minutes. It, it, it's very, it's my secret weapon for learning new things. And you can, you just cruise through it. and it, it, It's terrific. I used to read book reviews uh, to get this, but this is a lot better than even a comprehensive book review. It is. And if you want to, you know, you go back and read the whole book, but it, it just, it, it may even whet your appetite. You know, you'd like Tim Ferriss's four hour work week from the popular books category. And James, you'll have more time to watch the saints, maybe even LSU. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think LSU you're going to play Florida this weekend. And they sure as hell ain't going to have 90,000 people in the stadium. No. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for you special listeners of Politics War Room. Go to Blinkist.com slash War Room to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. Blinkist. Spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash war room. It's all one word to start your seven-day free trial. Also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash war room or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, Richard Murray is a political science professor uh, at the University of Houston. Either due to or in spite of his undergraduate and master's education at that school in Baton Rouge, LSU, he is one of the foremost experts on American elections, especially in the Lone Star State. Dr. Murray, thank you for joining us. Um, I have been hearing for years that Republicans uh, are about to that they're in trouble in Texas, that Texas is about to turn purple. It's going to be in the next cycle or four years from now or eight years from now. Has that time finally arrived in 2020? I think so. Uh, the combination of the gradual 
demographic shifts and then the the uh, catalyst of Donald John Trump has moved everything up four to six years. For Biden to become the first Democratic candidate since Jimmy Carter to carry Texas, what does he have to do? Walk us through the political demographics of how a Democrat carries Texas. First, there has to be very, very high voter turnout. Republicans, in part, have been winning easily because we've been one of the lowest turnout states in the country. Uh, yesterday, we got a partial answer. We opened up early voting and it was off the charts. So uh, that's a good sign for Biden. Uh, we basically doubled the vote uh, on the first day of early voting from 2016. In our county, we had 128,000 people vote in person, and that's just unprecedented. So he ta- he carries the urban counties. He carries Harris, and uh, he carries uh, you know Dallas and North. But 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 can he cut? Can does he have to cut into the margins of those rural areas where Republicans run up huge margins? And does he have the capacity to do that? Uh, really not. He, he, if he wins, he wins in the suburban counties. Uh, the county to watch closest is the biggest suburban county, Collin, that's north of Dallas, and uh, about 1.2 million people. Beto got 48% there. Biden needs to get a little over 50. And that would just be unheard of. This was a very red county until quite recently. That's fascinating. You know, Beto gave Ted Cruz a tough race, but he lost by two and a half. MJ Hager have a shot? Yeah, but... Uh, the, Biden would have to be winning the state probably by 53 percent, which is possible. I think he's going to win the state now. But, uh, you know, uh, Cornyn should run ahead of Trump. Uh, Just two or three points, I would guess. So let me go. You just said something. Right now, you think Biden is going to win Texas. That actually came out of your mouth. Yes. You did. So after the 2018 election, all the commentary was that Beto really excited, you know, the, the Democratic base, young voters, et cetera, et cetera. Then Nate Cohn comes out and did an analysis and said, well, actually, the, the young share of the vote wasn't anything or, or the non-white share wasn't anything above what you expect. What changes is he had massive changes in, in white women, of white college educated voters, of which there's a gazillion of in Texas. Do you agree with Nate's analysis? Yeah, uh, Beto fell short because he didn't really inspire a great turnout in black and Latino neighborhoods. You know, he he, uh, didn't do that well in the Democratic primary against an unknown black and Latino. And uh, if he had gotten turnout up to the level of elsewhere, he would have probably eased by Cruz, but he didn't. And uh, he fell short, but he did tremendously well with white women, no question. Well, how would you, there there seems to be, in Florida, it's more pronounced, but there's a general feeling among Democrats that we should be doing better with Latinos. Right. What would you advise the Biden campaign to do, like uh, in Texas, which the Latino population is entirely different in Florida? But what do you think he should be doing between now and election day to, to get his share of Latino vote up? Uh, he needs, I think, to be physically present here. I think he's got an El Paso stop schedule, but he really needs to be in the lower Rio Grande and in Houston, because although San Antonio is more heavily Hispanic, we have the largest Latino population in the state because we're such a big metro area. Uh, obviously, he's rolling in money, so he needs to put a little more of that into Texas. Why do you say that Hager needs to run Biden needs to run at 53 to get Hague over the finish line. That's a, that's a pretty big gap there. But you, Cornyn should run ahead of Trump. I mean, there's just, you know, Trump's going to lose a fair number of the never Trump Republicans, but I think they'll come back and vote pretty much down the line for the, a regular Republican like Cornyn. Uh, you saw him trying to get some distance in, in the Houston Chronicle Ed Board meeting, which I thought yeah, was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think he was talking to people in the woodlands. <laughs> yeah, he's reading his poll numbers. Uh, even Crenshaw, you know, who's kind of the rising young star of the Texas Republican Party, is now putting some distance between himself, you know, bemoaning the fact that, you know, women, they just don't like Trump. And, uh, you know, he's actually at some risk of losing here. And, you know, he's probably their brightest young prospect in the Texas Republican Party. You know, that's really when I started covering Congress back in the 70s, uh, uh, Dr. Murray, the Texas delegation, the Democrats, Jack Brooks, Jim Wright, uh, Jake Pickle, even, you know, Barbara Jordan, that, that, that was a dominant force. Now, of course, the delegation in the last 
20, 25 years has become overwhelmingly Republican. And talking to Democrats just this week, they think they could pick up at least three or four House seats in Texas. Two, they say, are a slam dunk, and conceivably as many as a half dozen this, this year. And, and, and they're across the board, San Antonio, Fort Worth, uh, uh, the Dallas, uh, the Houston, Austin uh, uh, axis. I mean, that, that really would signify a huge change in Texas politics. Yeah, it, you know, I was present at the creation of this very, very skillful congressional gerrymander. I, I mean, I've worked on maps for 50 years. This is one of the best I've ever seen drawn, but it's, it's blowing up in their face. Yes. They, they tried to get a little too greedy. And uh, could lose five, six, seven seats this time after the two they lost last cycle. Well, that that lead that leads me to the Texas legislature because I gather the Democrats also think they they have a shot. At least it's a priority to pick up uh, you know nine or ten seats in that Texas House, which would be the first time in twenty years. What are the what are the probabilities of that occurring? Better than fifty percent. They've got about eighteen Republican districts that they've got a pretty good shot at winning. I think they'll win ten, twelve maybe even 15, uh, lose maybe one that they picked up last time. Uh, again, they, they, that state house map is constrained in terms of map drawing by the, in the big urban counties, you can't cross a county line. And that's kind of walled the Republicans in. So they drew Dallas County to win eight out of 14 seats, which was crazy because their, their support was dropping. They're down to two seats. They're probably going to lose those. So here's a map they drew, and they're going to have zero out of 14 in Dallas County. Uh, again, two, uh, you know, the overall street line, pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered. Don't get too damn greedy. <laughs> you know, reinforcing James's question earlier, I, I saw where you wrote that Texas could be moving like California circa 1994 because of Trump and his anti-immigration and the suburbs. Uh, I mean, that would really turn Texas into maybe even a blue state in another five or 10 years. Well, it's amazing to me that given the example of California and Pete Wilson's presidential gambit in 94 that blew up at the party, that the Texas Republican Party are at risk of the same thing. The more moderate leadership is being squeezed out by the wackos. And even Greg Abbott, our governor, a very conservative Republican, but he's got a sizable faction that are outside the governor's mansion beating on garbage cans, you know, say open up Texas and the, it's uh, so they're forming a circular squad, firing squad here, led by the new state chairman Alan West. You remember him from Florida. Right. Oh God! <laughs> so what is life like for you know? And I think of the Republican Party in Texas. You know, it was like I mean Bush. It was the West Side of Houston, and you know those people are just as Republican as you can be, and also they're as pro-immigrant as you can be, and they got to be massively uncomfortable with Donald Trump and massively uncomfortable with the, the Democratic Party. It must be having a miserable time right now. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that the two seats the Republicans lost in 218 were the two Bush seats, the one where George W. Bush lives and the seat where George H. W. Bush historically lived. These were the country club Republican districts. They were the first districts that went Republican and uh, they're the first ones they lost back. Yeah, it's just kind of funny. First in and first out. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Of course, so some of these other districts. Uh, but, I mean, the Republican lock, like on the panhandle, is, I mean, yeah. I was looking at some of those returns. I mean, it's like 85, 87 percent. Yeah. And that's not going to change. Yeah. But if you look at divide the state up the way I do into the take out the 30 predominantly Latino border counties, that's about 8 percent of the state's population, very democratic, getting a little more so. Then the 28 metro counties around San Antonio, Austin, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, that's that's 69% of the vote. So everything that's left is 23%. And that's going to be terrifically Republican. I mean, Trump is extremely popular, but 23% is still 23%. And, you know, you're going to get 75% of that vote, but that's probably not enough this year. So, so, under the category, how in the fuck could they do this? So they, they, they got one drop box in Harris County, which is 4.7 million people, and one drop box in Loving County, which is, what, 150 people? <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's just a reaction. I mean, I, I've heard people have— you're not, you're not counting the cows. Yeah, people have come up, and, and how can that be legal? How can that be constitutional? 
I mean, how can it actually, how can the governor actually do that and the court say that's okay? Well, they did, but it's, it's uh, kind of a pirate victory because the Democrats actually run the big urban counties. So we have a very aggressive clerk here, young African-American man. He's opened up 120 early vote stations. And we had 128,000 people vote in those early vote stations. So it's not going to work. Uh, we're going to have a massive turnout here in the in the big urban counties. I told uh, uh, Brian Williams showed up the other night, and they had these people waiting 10 hours in line at Atlanta. And I said, you know, one of the things they don't, they don't calculate is you try to p- stop people from voting, that's going to cause them to want to vote more. I mean, this stuff can backfire, you, you know, yeah. particularly among African-Americans. They have a, a, a rather treasured relationship with the right to vote i mean that's a, a part of it you know we don't have to think about voting because we always could vote yesterday we could see black voting was very robust and in contrast to 2018 when beto didn't quite get over the hump so uh it's not so you know biden's an okay guy and the older blacks like him but i think all of the shenanigans that the texas republicans have engaged in is, is stirred up the young voters and that's probably again going to be one of the five or six reasons why uh, Trump probably loses the state. You know, Professor, my, my second favorite, you're my favorite uh, Texas political analyst. My second favorite was Molly Ivins, who I really miss these days. I look at I look at that Republican Party. I mean, your lieutenant governor, uh, I believe, said, let's send the geezers out because they can die and then we'll all be safe. But my favorite is your attorney general, Ken Paxson, who was accused by seven of his own aides, of his own aides, of bribery. But that wasn't any great surprise. He'd been under indictment for years, but he won re-election by 300,000 votes last time. Would you please explain that Molly would love to have written about Ken Paxton? Well, kind of the Cruz-Beto race sucked a lot of the oxygen out of the room, and the guy running against Paxton was a young, decent lawyer, but didn't have any money. And it was just, he couldn't get the story out. It's a good story, but, you know, it's a big state with 20 media markets, and it it Paxton stayed enough under the radar that, uh, again, with, with not great voting from Latinos and blacks, he survived. So Paul Begala, a great friend of mine, a great friend of this show, he says that he's a native of Fort Bend County and claims that it's the most changing, interesting county in the United States. Is Paul very far off? No, it's, it's a tremendously interesting county. It's got basically four equal segments now. Anglos are about 30 percent. Asians are 20, Blacks, Latinos split the rest. Now it's become a terrifically Democratic county in just four years, thanks to Trump. You know, their, their new county judge out there, he beat a respected Republican, it was born in South India. Uh, so, you know, we have a, the Asians are it, it flipped in Fort Bend County. And that's why I think Collin County will also go Democratic. Second biggest growth of Asians uh, in, in Texas is in Collin County. And, uh, you know, they're not Democrats. They just don't like Trump. Well, the Asians, the Asians all over are doing that, Professor. And I think there's a kind of simple reason, uh, which my my partner, James Carver, once said, when you tell people you don't like them, they tend not to vote for you. Uh, And he's done. Trump has done that not only with Latinos, but also with Asians. And just to pick up on one more thing about Fort Bend, what I find so fascinating, Paul has talked about this. It is a a a a distinctly uh, majority minority county, 60, 65 percent minority. And also, I believe it's the wealthiest county in Texas. Yeah. And the best educated. Uh, It's Collins close, but there it's uh, and it's a county that the, the Democrats want every countywide office there. Uh, in 2018, and they'll win everyone this time. So that, you know, it's it's a county in transition, and it, it's the canary in the mine because Collin County will be the next big suburban county that the Asians tip away from the Republican Party. So election night, will, will we get a, a, a almost full count from Texas? Yeah, we should. It, it should be clear by. 10 o'clock local time, 11 o'clock Eastern, uh, what the presidential race is going to be, because we allow the big urban counties to process their uh, their mail-in ballots uh, so that they can be counted very quickly. Most of us now vote in person early. So we'll get 80% of our vote reported by eight o'clock local time. And there's just not enough left. You know, it's pretty clear that Beto was going to be close in 218, but he's going to fall just short. And we'll get the same story here uh, time-wise. So along with Florida, we're not going to be waiting a long time to get 
get a result from Texas. Right, right. And so we would say, I'm, I'm putting the list of my dashboard counties. And if if Biden carries blank county, he's going to carry Texas. What is the blank county? Colin? Colin. Yeah. It, he just has to carry it, though. He doesn't. Yes. If he's getting over 50 percent, that probably means that there's not a track for the the, the rule at smaller metro areas to overcome the huge disadvantage they're going to be. It's not enough for Democrats to win Dallas and Harris County and Travis and Bear. They got to win a bigger share of the suburban vote. Gotcha. So that that because but I have this theory that we're going to know. I mean, the, the, the range of possibilities of this election are that Trump replicates 2016, loses the popular vote, but draws an inside straight in Electoral College or it's a Biden landslide. Right. My point is, we're going to know that election night. I don't give a shit when Michigan counts the absentees if it if 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 Biden carries Collin County or New Hanover County in North Carolina or Duval in Florida or if he gets six over 60 in Gwinnett. I, I mean, I, I actually think we're going to know who won the election by 1030 Eastern. But I think it, so. Yeah, but it's going to be close. Then, then that's it. But we're going to be looking really closely at Collin County, which I think is a little north of Dallas and north of Dallas County. I'm yeah, it's just north right. of Dallas. Well, listen, this is I know you have to get to class, Dr. Murray. Uh, I want to tell you, you have been you. We had really, really high expectations and you've exceeded them. But, James, I want to tell you something. Uh, he is only my second favorite in that family because his <laughs> wife's pediatrician was my father. Oh, wow. So, Dr. Murray. <laughs> Dr. Murray, you're number two. Okay. And I ha- this is Debbie, Mrs. Murray. I have an uh, incident with James Carville. Uh-oh. Uh- <laughs> Uh-oh. It's not going to end well. No, no. Uh-oh. This is a yeah. minor, minor. But uh, Dick and I have a second home in the Napa Valley area. And we always go to Dauntville to the ranch market to get our newspapers. And I guess, I guess James was on a holiday and he and I both reached for the last Wall Street Journal they had. And James, being a gentleman, said, no, no, you take it. Me being uh, someone who lives there and I know where I can get another one, I allowed James to go ahead and take that Wall Street Journal. Oh, <laughs> uh, I got I got could, uh, every August of the Foundation. Uh, my wife and I are big supporters of that. And it's just terrific. How the, the the fires are well, just awful. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Suzanne Pride. I mean, it's just it's horrible. It is. Yeah, it's. Uh, my mother and I were evacuated in 2017 from our house out there, um, but now we've moved into the valley, into Yontville. So uh, it's just the smoke that gets mm. to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, be 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 safe. I mean, you all have both. You have hurricane fears in Houston yeah. and fire fears in uh, California. I don't know what yeah. to advise you. But I'll tell you this much. You have been terrific guests. Uh, and uh, uh, Debbie Murray, I'll tell you, when you have a James Carville Wall Street Journal story and a story about my father's pediatrician, man, we've lived today. <laughs> oh, Dr. God. Murray, we're going to watch your prediction really carefully on November 3rd. Good luck in class today, and thank you for being with us. Okay, good talking thank to you guys. Thank you so much. And you, by the way, you had the good sense to have Dr. Hunt for a pediatrician and to marry an LSU guy. Go Tigers. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, a wellness company that is known for its delicious mushroom coffee. All Four Sigmatic products use lab-tested, organic, vegan, fair trade, and gluten-free ingredients using single-origin Arabic coffee with lion's mane mushrooms for productivity and shaga mushroom for immune support. Now, you're probably thinking, does this coffee taste like mushrooms, James? No, it doesn't. It tastes like coffee, like good coffee. It's got depth. It's got texture. It's got everything that you look for in in coffee. I'm a coffee freak, and there's no awful jittery feeling I only get that when I'm thinking about Trump. Well, you know, we may have to use it uh, election night or election eve. This stuff tastes good. Trust me. If it's not, blame me. But I recommend it highly. It comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling mushroom coffee. This is just 
for Politics War Room listeners, you special group, get up to 40% off plus free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles. To claim this deal, you go to foursigmatic.com slash warroom or look for the link in our show notes. This offer is only for Politics War Room listeners and it's not available on their regular website. So you save up to 40%, you get free shipping. So let me ask you all a question. If someone is stigmatic, doesn't that mean like they bleed from Jesus's wounds? I just think it's just an interesting name because that's what I, that's what stigmatic means to me. James, James, James. Spell it. F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash war room and fuel your productivity and creativity with some delicious mushroom coffee. There you go. Foursigmatic.com <laughs> slash war room. Or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James, I've been in Washington for a long, long time. There is no older source, friend, or more valuable participant in the public arena than Fred Wertheimer. Former president of Common Cause, now head of Democracy 21, a tireless champion for reform to make government more honest and accountable. Fred, thank you for joining us. And you have warned for so many years about the insidiousness of big money. This year, there are sums rolling around that we can only imagine. I think it was put out the other day, probably, you know, they'll spend $11 billion on this uh, campaign. But it's not all bad, is it? No, and and by the way, Albert, I'd like to get that introduction in writing if I can. <laughs> no, this is a very interesting development. As you say, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is we're seeing increasing amounts of small contributions in our elections. Uh, small contributions are good. They engage citizens and they don't buy influence over office holders and government decisions. And the intensity of this election combined with increased ability to raise small contributions on the internet is uh, is a big reason why we're getting more small contributions. The unlimited contributions that come in through super PACs uh, are bad. They create corrupt the ability to buy corrupting influence over office holders and government decisions. And the most dangerous money is the unlimited contributions that are secret, that are run through nonprofit groups, uh, and that are completely unaccountable. So there's no way to ever know if money is being exchanged for government decisions. Last, which last elected a Democratic senator in 1936, raised $13.5 million in the third quarter. Jamie Harrison in South Carolina raised $57 million. I mean, these numbers, Fred, are mind-boggling. Well, we've never seen anything like it. For example... Is it Trump or what? Well, it is the intensity of this election. It's Trump. Trump is a major motivating factor. But I think the American people, many of them, have concluded this is the most important election in their lifetimes, and people are getting engaged in many ways. I mean, they're getting engaged through financial support. We saw these huge lines to vote at the beginning of the opening of early voting. Uh, this is an election from a financing standpoint never seen before. That $11 billion estimated total uh, is, uh, is, compares with $6.5 billion in the last presidential election. There's nothing like this, and it is making the case for the fact that we have to repair this system uh, by, by emphasizing and making more important the small contributions so they can, we can flood the system with small money and dilute the power of this influence buying money. You know, the top 100 donors so far 
in this election have given $780 million. That's absurd. That's just ridiculous. So I'm reading from a Time story, and it points out in September 2019, Biden raised just $24,124.17 in one day. In a little over the year, the former vice president's online fundraising had increased a thousandfold to 24 million, a hundred thousand on September 30th. So he's, he's now he went from raising 24,000 a day to raising 24 million a day. I, I, I you just can't you can't get your mind around that kind of money. I mean, obviously he wasn't he, he wasn't uh, the nominee or the favorite then. But what you're pointing to is the internet has changed the dynamic of fundraising in our country in 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 this way it has greatly increased the capacity for average americans to get into the game it's no longer just the big money the big money fundraising events uh the the solicitation of donors who are looking for favors the American people are now getting involved in a big way, and that's very healthy, and that's what we have to increase. That's what the reforms in Congress would do. They would greatly increase the value of small contributions uh, by matching them six to one uh, with public funds, not taxpayer funds, but other public funds, and they would create the capacity along with the internet to flood the system and to put in perspective and weaken all of this influence money that dominates Washington today. It just pervades the system in Washington. Help my memory. In 1992, as I recall, we accepted like $72 million from the government to fund our, our general election campaign. I think that was the law. Is that still the law and just no one takes it and everybody goes to raise as much money as they can? Yeah, the presidential public finance system worked for seven elections. Every president and every almost every major party candidate participated in it. What happened was uh, it got outdated because the costs of campaigns dramatically increased and Congress never made adjustments in the spending limits in that bill and or in the amount of public money that could be given. So it's still on the books today, but it can't be used because you can't go into it and be competitive. Now, the legislation, H.R. 1 in Congress, would repair that system and modernize it, and it would take us back to a way where presidential candidates could get their money through a combination of public funds and small donors and no longer need to be obligated to or rely on the big money that sloshes around the system today. So let me just repeat what you said. There's actually a mechanism that we could have that could adequately fund the presidential campaign without the influence of these big donors. That, that's actually a possibility that exists. I think that's what you're saying. I don't think most people realize it. It not only is a possibility, it passed the House last year. Vice President Biden, uh, uh, Democratic leader Schumer in the Senate, and House Speaker Pelosi all have said this legislation, H.R. 1, which contains a number of democracy reforms, would be a top priority in 2021. So depending on the outcome of this election, this legislation and this campaign finance system it would be considered early in 2021, and we could transform the way our campaigns are financed in a way they haven't been able to. We haven't been able to do since the Watergate scandals. There's a huge opportunity ahead, depending on the outcome of this election. And one of the top targets, as you cited earlier, should be the so-called dark money, undisclosed money, secret money. It became a big issue in the Barrett hearings when Sheldon Whitehouse laid out all of the 
connected sums of dirty money coming from the Kochs and the Bradley Foundation, the Federalist Society. Ted Cruz shot back, hey, you guys are getting more dirty money. Uh, the Democrats raise more. I don't know who's right, but it seems to me, Fred, there's, there, there, there's two simple answers. Number one, disclosure, and number two, ban dark money if you can. Well, that's absolutely correct. And the history here is Citizens United, the Supreme Court decision, opened the door to this dark money by allowing nonprofit groups who don't disclose their donors to spend money indirectly in campaigns. The Democrats, and we've been involved as an outside group, uh, Democracy 21, we've been trying to fix this system, close that loophole, which we can since 2010. In 2010, Democrats came within one vote of blocking and ending dark money in elections. Not one Republican senator voted for it, and we got two Republicans in the House. It got blocked by, by one vote in the Senate led by Senate Leader McConnell. Now, Democrats have been trying to close this system since 2010, and Republicans have blocked it uh, for a decade. So if Republicans are complaining about Democrats now beating them in this system, and by the way, the Republicans started, started this system in 2010 following Citizens United, they have a simple solution. They can join the Democrats in closing this loophole, this legislation, the Disclose Act is also an H.R. 1, and if that bill is ready to go in 2021, it will end the dark money system. Mitch McConnell used to always uh, pray as a great champion of disclosure until it became inconvenient for him to do so, and then he did a 180. So, you know, I don't expect him to be any better. Fred, are you convinced, let's assume Biden wins, the Democrats take back the Senate, are you optimistic uh, about, first of all, that this reform will happen and that Biden will keep K Street out of the government? Well, uh, I don't wear rose-colored glasses. I think there, I, th I am optimistic, however. We have an excellent chance for historic democracy reforms in 2021, dealing with campaign finance, voting rights, redistricting, and ethics. Uh, the fight over campaign finance is always a very tough fight because members of Congress have to vote to create a system that will help their challengers. But I, we've won it before, and I think we can and will win it in 2021 if uh, the election turns out, as you stated. Secondly, K Street's been aligned a long time. The public, the reason we are in such strong shape on these reforms is the public hates what goes on in Washington. And all I can say, it will be to Biden's interests and to anyone who wants to pass legislation, who wants to uh, enact dramatic changes in our policies to keep K Street far away from the administration to enact H.R. 1 immediately so that the system is transformed and then to go after the policy changes you're interested in. I think there's an excellent chance that Biden will do that, but uh, K Street is there and they'll be fighting every step of the way. So I was reading an article. How much money do you think they've pumped into these judicial appointments? I mean, that they're moving you know, that they just caught, they, they just pushed this to Coke and everybody. And it, a lot of it is about business deregulation in the Chevron case. Can you talk a little bit about the amount of money that these interest groups put into these judicial nominations and the Federalist Society and that kind of thing? Because I think that's an underreported, appreciated thing. Well, tens, tens of millions of dollars over a period of time. This has been going on for some time. The uh, Federalist Society, the Koch brothers, others have always had on their agenda changing the makeup of the courts, the Supreme Court, the lower courts. And they have had a campaign that involves 
large amounts of secret money. We don't know who the donors are. They're not disclosed. Uh, and it is done in similar ways to the ways in which money is pumped into campaigns. Now, one of the big problems here is this money is not just going into federal courts. It is going into states and particularly to state Supreme Court elections in the states where they elect the Supreme Court justices. And that has been a huge factor in changing the makeup in Supreme Courts around the country at the state level. Uh, And that is also having uh, uh, insidious impact uh, on our judicial system at the state level as well as the federal level. Uh, Senator Whitehouse, who is a champion of ending the dark money system, also has legislation to require this judicial money to be disclosed. Uh, And I believe that will be part of the legislation in 2021 so we can know what's going on here. Along these lines, it's been a considerable amount of talk of if Biden wins, the Democrats win the Senate, to take a long, hard look at, shall we say, the federal judiciary and and possibly expanding that, diplomatically saying that might change the number of people. Do you think that would be a good idea? And is there anything that the Supreme Court, could they say you don't have the right to do that, or just constitutionally, it's just clear that Congress has the right to establish the number of justices? It's clear that Congress has the right to establish the number of justices. Uh, the, uh, they have changed the number uh, uh, over, over the years. It has never, it's not always been nine. Uh, I think people will look at this. I don't think it would happen quickly. It will be depend on how this plays out. The Republicans have been complaining about Democrats packing the Supreme Court in the courts. They have been packing the courts for years. They have packed the lower courts with conservative and right-wing uh, judges and slammed them through this Congress. They have had a game plan to pack the Supreme Court with conservative justices, and they did that when they blocked Judge Garland, uh, Merrick Garland, for 10 months and then are rushing through this nominee at uh, unprecedented speed. So they've got no complaints about packing the courts. They've been doing it uh, for years. But now I, don't, I can't say what's going to happen next. It's not clear. I think there will be resistance among Democrats uh, to do this at the outset. But if this Supreme Court goes out to start destroying public policies enacted by Congress and overwhelmingly approved by the American people, then it's an open question and, and the pressure will grow to undo what the Republicans have done in the last few years. Well, I want to tell you, Fred, um, I may have to deny that introduction, but every word of it's true. There has been no one that has ever, no one who's fought so hard for so many important causes, and you have won a lot. Uh, I I wish John McCain were still around to help you in 2021. I'm not sure I see any Republican who will but we can hope. But thank you very much. Uh, And uh, we all look forward to that challenge next year. Thanks very much. John McCain was one of our greatest leaders on these issues, and we miss him deeply. Thank you, guys. All right, Fred. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Now, it's a delicious cereal with zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net carbs in each serving of either cocoa, fruity, frosted, or blueberry flavors, which means you can stay healthy and still enjoy your breakfast. James, you sold me out to my grandchild, Kai, last week. This week, we had another contest. He liked cocoa. I like fruity. Where are you? You wouldn't believe how the frosted flavor is. I mean, it's really good. I get so much energy on my daily run. It's crazy. I can tell the difference. I'm knocked off about... 30 seconds on my, on my time, which is a lot for a guy like me. I don't, I mean, you get my age, you don't knock time off of anything, but it gave me a boost. I'll, I'll tell you that. And you're not going to choose sides in the Kai versus me, Fruity versus Coco, huh? <laughs> uh, for once, James Carville ducks. It's keto-friendly, 
gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. So it's got all the good stuff. Go to magicspoon.com slash warroom to grab a variety pack. Try it today. And be sure to get our promo code warroom. That's one word, uh, W-A-R-R-O-O-M, and check out to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in this product, it's backed up with a 100% happiness guarantee. That means if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom for free shipping. That's magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom for free shipping. Look for the link in our show notes. Hey, thanks, Magic Spoon. I really do it every morning. I gobble it up every morning. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Well, we have a bunch of questions that our listeners sent in uh, from all around the globe. Let me start off, James, with Doug from Des Moines. He'd like to get your thoughts on the Electoral College. Should it be reformed, abolished, will it be? Well, there's actually a, a, a provision that, you, the first of all, you're not going to abolish it. Forget it. There's, there's not, the code is not going to vote to diminish itself. In the way, you, you got to get, I think it's three quarters of the states uh, to ratify. But what they are doing is they're doing this kind of compact, and I don't know the exact number, maybe we got states almost 200 electoral votes now, that that directs their state legislators to direct the electors to vote for the winner of the popular vote. I think Maryland was the first state to do that. Now, if they ever get to that point, you know, of course, the Supreme Court would, would weigh in on it. But that's the vehicle by which you get rid of the Electoral College. The other thing that would help some, if the Democrats win the Senate, in all likelihood, D.C. and Puerto Rico would be a state. So you, it, it have some balancing effect not not a whole lot but it would help some and as a the thing called abolish the electoral college and they're, they're i know the guy that runs it san francisco and and they're very very aggressive and they spend a pretty good bit of money so people are really trying to do this but you're going to have to try to do it within the constitutional framework because this is going to be hard for people to give up the undue power that they already have in the electoral college. And yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm all for doing it, but it's not going to happen. And I just think, uh, you know, it should happen, uh, but it won't happen. We got a whole bunch of questions about the Supreme court, not surprisingly, but Vince from Sydney, Australia writes, why aren't the Democrats saying Republicans, you're going to pack the court when you go to six, three, uh, isn't that packing the court? I actually think the better argument is that that Mitch McConnell unpacked the court, lowered, as we said earlier, to eight members uh, when he refused to even hold a hearing for 11 months on Merrick Garland. Yeah. yeah. Understand this about Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is about one thing and one thing only, and that is power. And whatever he power and he money, has, well, and money. money is power. All right. That, that's I don't I don't really distinguish between money and power because his power is his money. He, the, 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 you want to know why these Republicans don't break with Mitch? Because he's the sugar daddy. He's got all his, all his money's doling out to Cory Gardner and to, to Kelly Loeffler and to, you know, Tom Tillis, you name it. So, but, the, and he will exercise it as ruthlessly as he can. And he doesn't, he doesn't care. It's, it, it man has no conscience. He doesn't care. And it's like, you know, and, and if the Democrats get power and they exercise it ruthlessly, I expect Mr. Connell to say, well, we did it to them. They did it to us. I don't think he'll lose a night's sleep over it. Hey, Jane from New York City wants to know, James, if Trump loses big, as we think he's going to, do you think he might resign and have Pence pardon him? Yes. And I, and I think right now, and I've said this repeatedly, what he's trying to do, and you can see he's trying to get the base as agitated as he possibly can, where, you know, they, they go in to get a deal with Andrew, to pardon for anything in New York City, and the country is going to be so, is going to be so exhausted and so happy that he's gone. They'll say just anything, just let him go to Mar-a-Lago, let him start Trump TV. I can't, I can't see him anymore. I don't want to look at him. I don't want to see a trial. I don't want to see this division, these these proud boys and militias and all of that because that's going to happen. You you think what they did to Gretchen Whitmer or tried to do to uh, or Ralph Northam? Can you imagine what's going to happen when, when Cyrus Vance indicts him on, on an airtight case? 
I, 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 this is something that's coming, and and he knows it. And this is the this is his entire strategy. I I don't disagree with that. I just think it's going to be pretty darn hard for Andrew Cuomo to go along with uh, an unjustified pardon. We'll see. I, we'll see how it's going to play out. I I, I, I it's a lot, I agree, but that this is what's up. And if he gets enough, pe- people are going to say. I can feel it. Just I don't want to relive this. Uh, let's stay in in uh, in New York City. Uh, Jim from Brooklyn uh, writes: Assuming the election plays out the way we've been saying it's going to, and Biden wins big, Democrats take the Senate. What are the big issues that the country? He says that this coalition can address. Jim, first of all, there ain't going to be any coalition because Republicans aren't going to go along. I mean, the idea of of restructuring that old coalition that used to exist when Joe Biden's earlier years in the Senate isn't going to happen. They're going to have a hell of a challenge. But when you look at Trump, you say, "Bring it on!" And the first thing they're going to have to do is some kind of massive uh, fiscal relief program because of the failure of Senate Republicans to do it this year. And they're going to have to do it under a process that allows them to do it with 51 votes and it's probably going to involve a lot of money and then they're going to have to turn around and under the same procedure do a a big big tax increase uh it's 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 a daunting challenge the biggest since fdr but it's a heck of a lot better than what we have now yeah i i have a i i, I think that that view is the correct view but i i, I have a, 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 i'd add just a caution if if it turns out the way that we hope it will in the way that we think it will but we can think and we can be thinking wrong. The Republican Party is going to going to have a lot of things that it's going to have to address simultaneously. But the biggest thing they're going to have to address is the Senate map in 2022. It's awful for them. And you know, Marco Rubio is going to say, "Do I double down on you know being you know as bit as Trumpy as I can, or do I have to come back with some kind of accomplishment?" When I run in Florida, you know, Pat Toomey just decided I don't want to do it. And I mean, he looked around a corner. He saw it was coming. Rob Portman is going to be in a really, really competitive Senate race. He's going to be really competitive. And if he just goes down, you know, and there's a good chance that, that, that even Trump loses Ohio. The, the same thing, the Grassley seat. I don't know how when they had Grassley and Dianne Feinstein and Pat Leahy questioning Amy Coney Barrett. Geez, could we get somebody under 90 in there? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I don't think that's got I just think, James, that the idea I, I agree that would be an inclination for some, but the idea that Rubio and Portman can support something that's supported by Warren and Sanders, uh that's a that's a reach. That's a reach. It yeah, it it, it but it but it may be that they support something by by Bullock and and Mansion or something that is by Hick and Loop and Kelly. I mean, remember, the incoming Democratic Senate caucus, if they pick up as many seats as we hope they do, is going to be more conservative than the current Democratic Senate caucus. It is, James. But let me tell you something. Having covered the Senate for many years, I'll give you a key number, 51. you got to have 51 or 50 votes. And if you, you know, putting together Rubio and Portman probably means you're losing some of those libs. I, it's, that's a very tough needle of thread. Maybe they can do it. But. Maybe. I, I, I don't think. I don't think I'm not predicting that it's happening, but I'm saying it's just something. You know, when we think that, just at the moment we think that not that this can't happen, this happens sometimes. All I'm doing is I'm not I'm saying the most likely thing is is that the end of filibuster and a assume you got 52 Democratic senators and they lose they lose one or two, and they ram it through. But I'm just, I'm just throwing out the possibility of a, a different result because if this election is big. Clearly, what people are saying is we're tired of this shit. Well, they are, uh, but 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 still, boy, those challenges are huge. Yeah, they are. I I, I agree. I, I'm not predicting, but I'm just I'm just saying. Well, wait a minute. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and Al Hunt. Remember to email your questions to politicswarroom at gmail dot com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show, hopefully with a five-star review. We'll be back next week as we get closer and closer to that big day, November 3rd. Please vote.